Hello and welcome to the latest episode in our Pensions Lawcast series. Today, Laura, Tara and I will be providing an update on the Pensions Ombudsman. The focus of this session is looking at a shift in the Ombudsman's approach to dealing with complaints, some key trends we're seeing arising out of Ombudsman determinations, and then looking at the continuing issue of pension scams and the approach the Ombudsman is taking on this important issue. I'm going to kick off by looking at the shift in the Ombudsman's approach to dealing with complaints. The headline from the Ombudsman in the last 18 months has been a concerted shift towards early and informal resolution of cases. It's easy to think that the majority of complaints to the Ombudsman result in a determination. In fact, very few inquiries to the Ombudsman's office actually result in a formal determination. Some of the figures in the Ombudsman's latest annual report help to illustrate this point very clearly. In the last year, the Ombudsman dealt with over 11,500 telephone inquiries. That's a 41% increase on the previous year, and almost 9,000 written inquiries, almost 25% increase from the previous year. It's a quite staggering number of inquiries, and the increase would suggest that members are engaging more actively with their pensions. Of the 9,000 written inquiries, the Ombudsman took on 2,400 new early resolution investigations and just under 1,200 new adjudication cases. And then of all the completed investigations during the year, 95% of those were resolved by informal routes, i.e. did not require a determination from the Ombudsman, and that compares to 80% from the previous year. I think that the shift away from adjudication cases is beneficial for both complainants and pension providers and trustees. It provides quicker resolution to the issue, less stress for the complainant, and saves time and money, both for trustees, providers, and also for the Ombudsman. So turning now to the dispute resolution process itself at the Ombudsman, there are essentially seven ways in which a complaint that is accepted for an investigation can be resolved. Only one of those involves a formal determination from the Ombudsman. The others involve informal, and in many cases early, dispute resolution. The Ombudsman applies the quick responses approach to problems that are clearly resolvable with minimum of intervention. It will happen at the very early stages in the process and usually involves just someone from the Ombudsman's office and the person making the complaint. Early resolution applies to complaints where the matter appears to be resolvable with a limited amount of intervention. It's usually necessary for a resolution specialist to liaise with the complainant and the party being complained about. And just for reference, the resolution specialists are broadly what used to be the tea pacifiers. The Ombudsman calls these early resolution investigations because they aim to get involved as early as possible in the process to avoid parties having to go through further lengthy processes. If a complaint can't be resolved this way, the resolution specialist will explain the possible next steps, which might include the complaint being considered by an adjudicator and ultimately the Ombudsman. Resolved or withdrawn complaints are cases which are not handled under the early resolution service, whereby an adjudicator will explain the position to the complainant and possibly others involved in the complaint with a view to resolving the matter informally. Any agreement will be followed up by written reports issued to everyone involved in the complaint and the investigation will be closed. An adjudicator's opinion accepted happens where a case has been accepted for adjudication and the adjudicator will give everyone involved in the complaint their written view or opinion of the outcome. If all parties agree with the adjudicator's opinion, the investigation will be closed. Importantly, the adjudicator's opinion is not a published document, so it preserves the anonymity of the scheme and advisors, which can be an important consideration for the parties involved. 
In certain circumstances, the Ombudsman decides that the investigation into a complaint should not continue. But before discontinuing investigation, the Ombudsman will tell all parties to the complaint why the investigation is likely to be discontinued and to give them an opportunity to make representations. Where some or all of the people involved in the complaint do not accept the adjudicator's opinion, the complaint is then referred to the Ombudsman along with all of the submissions made by the parties. And the Ombudsman will then make his own decision based on the evidence and issue a determination. Before making his final determination, the Ombudsman might decide to call for additional evidence or further investigation. And in some cases, this can include an oral hearing. And then finally, in some cases, instead of going straight to issue a final determination, the Ombudsman might actually issue a preliminary decision and then go on to make a determination. And this typically happens where the complaint is highly complex, many issues to be addressed, and it gives the parties the opportunity to really review the Ombudsman's understanding of the case and how he intends to determine it and to make further representations. So Laura's now going to pick up on some of the key trends coming out of some recent determinations, i.e. the ones that have actually made it all the way to the Ombudsman for a formal determination. But before getting to that, I just want to refer to one final statistic. Of that 5% of complaints that end up with a determination, only 10% of those were upheld by the Ombudsman in the last year. A further 19% were partially upheld, but that leaves 71% where the complaint was not upheld. And I think that just demonstrates that in the main, trustees and their advisors are doing a really good job. And so without further ado, I'll pass over to Laura. Thanks, Mark. And Mark has just mentioned that very few of the complaints that actually end up at the Ombudsman's door are upheld. Um, and that brings me nicely to my general overview of the Ombudsman, that the Ombudsman has been clear in determinations and when he's been speaking publicly, that he's not seeking to be a champion for members. But what he's trying to do is to act impartially and weigh up the facts and evidence presented by both parties to a dispute. So let's look at some of the more specific themes that have been running through determinations in the past couple of years. The first one I want to talk about is duties of trustees and providers. In recent determinations, what we're seeing is that generally trustees in difficult situations shouldn't be held to unrealistic standards. This was demonstrated in the British Steel final determinations where the Ombudsman held that trustees had properly implemented changes to various bits of scheme documentation, including their statement of investment principles, transfer documentation and early retirement factors. And this was held despite members having complained that trustee communications had scared them into transferring out or taking early retirement sooner than they would otherwise have done. The Ombudsman, helpfully I think for trustees, acknowledged that trustees weren't and couldn't be expected to be aware of every member's individual circumstances when making such a generic decision. And there have been various other determinations that have followed this line of reasoning. But while there is that general theme of comfort for trustees, that where they're acting reasonably and within the scope of their duties, um, the Mrs S determination is an example of where trustees were caught out for applying an ill health test too rigidly. In this complaint, the trustees tried to impose a requirement that the member needed to be terminally ill before an ill health pension was paid. The Ombudsman, however, said that trustees weren't able to fetter their discretion by rigidly re applying requirements which weren't in the scheme rules, and the trustees were ordered to review their decision 
not to waive that early retirement deduction. The trustees also had to provide the member with a decision setting out their reasons and the evidence on which that decision was based. So moving on to the next theme, there's also been an increasing number of complaints on trustee and provider duties when communicating with members. So in the Mrs D determination, the member who complained was in receipt of a spouse's pension, which ceased when she started living with someone else. She then started living on her own again and complained that she should have been told that her pension wouldn't be restarted if she ceased living with her new partner. The Ombudsman held that although it would have been helpful for the scheme's original correspondence to have stated that the pension wouldn't be restarted if she then lived on her own again, um, the Ombudsman acknowledged that the trustees had acted in accordance with the regulations by giving that member the correct information that the pension would cease when the cohabitation began. So while the Ombudsman had sympathy for Mrs D's position, the Ombudsman did not uphold that complaint. It is different for trustees where they've assumed responsibility to provide that information voluntarily. Where they do, the Ombudsman has indicated that they need to get that information right. This was demonstrated in the Mr N determination, where the deputy pensioned Ombudsman determined that as the trustees had, had assumed that responsibility for providing accurate information to the member, and this was about special terms granted by the employer outside of the scheme rules, they should pay him £2,000 for the severe non-financial injustice caused by the incorrect statements that they sent to him. In terms of employers, they've got off relatively lightly. So the general theme that emerges um, from most recent determinations is that employer obligations are limited in line broadly with the duties set out in the various IBM cases. Although employers do need to watch out where there are cases of particular urgency or sensitivity, this was demonstrated in the estate of the late Mrs N determination, where the Deputy Pensions Ombudsman determined that the employer should have granted immediate retirement to a seriously ill member. In this case, on the 12th of January 2016, the employer determined to grant a member an ill health retirement pension. However, despite being aware that the member was terminally ill, the employer set her retirement date as the 31st of January, nearly three weeks after granting the ill health retirement pension. This meant that when she died on the 30th of January, she was still technically an active member of the scheme and the death benefits payable were substantially lower than if she'd been a pensioner. The Deputy Pensions Ombudsman stated that it wasn't a good defence for the employer um, to say that the family should have told them about the rapid deterioration of the member's health and the employer also hadn't explained to the member that different death benefits would be payable, depending on whether she was an active or a, a pensioner member of the scheme. So the Deputy Pensions Ombudsman directed that steps be taken to put the member's estate in the position it would have been had the member retired immediately on the 12th of January, together with interest and compensation for any additional tax incurred. So finally, I want to talk a bit about the Ombudsman's actions and processes which have been under scrutiny in recent years. We've again seen the wide scope of the Ombudsman's powers in the Mr R determination, where the Ombudsman has highlighted the principle that he's not bound by his own previous determinations. As you can imagine, this makes it particularly difficult to pre predict where he might land on a particular complaint. However, in the case of Sheffield and Keir Group, 
We've also seen that the courts are still willing to temper the, that wide scope of the Ombudsman's powers. And in that case, it was held that the Ombudsman had erred in law by determining questions that the member didn't ask him. Finally, the complaint where we've seen uh, quite a rise in the number of complaints is in, in relation to pension scams. And Tara is going to talk to you about that in more detail now. Thanks, Laura. So that's right, there's been a high volume of complaints to the Ombudsman in relation to pension scams. And the types of complaints can be divided into two broad categories. So the first, where a transfer request has been refused by the trustees due to their suspicions of a scam. And the second relates to transfers that have proceeded and a member raises a subsequent complaint that they've lost their funds due to that receiving vehicle turning out to be a scam. For the first type of complaint, where there have been significant delays or refusals in transfers, the Ombudsman will often find in favour of the member where that member had a statutory right to transfer. For the second group of complaints, where members have been allowed to transfer, but it later transpires that that was to a scam vehicle, generally the Ombudsman will not hold trustees liable with the benefit of hindsight where they took action that was reasonable in line with good industry practice at the time of the transfer. Often complaints are brought sometime after the transfer itself, and so it's necessary for the Ombudsman to look back and consider what guidance and procedures trustees should follow at the time. Earlier this year, the Ombudsman delivered the determination of Mr R, which is an example of such a transfer. Mr R had complained that his pension provider failed to carry out sufficient due diligence on his transfer requests, and his benefits were subsequently lost when transferred to a scam arrangement. The transfer out was made in 2012, which is many months before the regulator's guidance on transfers was issued in February 2013. Whilst the Ombudsman sympathised with Mr R's position, he ultimately found that the checks carried out were in line with industry standards at the time, and which were less onerous than present, and there was no evidence, based on the due diligence that was carried out, that the receiving scheme was a liberation vehicle. The Ombudsman also held there was no negligence, as it was not reasonably foreseeable that Mr R would have experienced any loss. Another example we've seen is that of Mr S, who complained when his pension provider transferred his benefits to a fraudulent scheme that the trustees of the transferring scheme failed to carry out due diligence as recommended by the regulator. This is again where we see the Ombudsman looking to what is reasonable in line with industry practice at the time of the transfer. This transfer actually took place over the period where the regulator was issuing its guidance on pension scams. The complaint was not upheld and the Ombudsman determined that it was reasonable for there to be some delay in providers changing their procedures to implement the new regulator fact sheets on transfers. In this case, there was a three month period before the provider changed its systems, although it did give Mr S its own fact sheet on pensions liberation. The Ombudsman also found that Mr S was motivated by receiving the non-repayable loan offered by the receiving scheme. And actually, he was likely to have transferred out whatever level of due diligence the provider had undertaken. So we've seen a pattern emerging of the Ombudsman giving reasonable latitude to mainstream, mainstream trustees who try to follow good industry practice. But there are some exceptions where such practice isn't followed and the Ombudsman has ordered a pension should be reinstated. In the case of Mr N, the member elected to take a transfer in November 2013 nine months after the regulator's Scorpion warning leaflet was published, but a copy of this was not sent to the member. The Ombudsman was satisfied that the transferring authority could have done more by way of due diligence and did not act in accordance with good industry practice at the time. The authority was also criticised for the lack of direct contact made with the member 
despite the number of red flags that appeared about the receiving vehicle. It was ordered that Mr N's benefits be reinstated in the scheme, adjusted for any value since the transfer. Following the determination of Mr N, which was specific to its facts, we have seen a rise in the number of claims management firms emerging, and these firms encourage scam victims to start actions against transferring schemes, either by bringing a claim directly or by trying to get members to bring a data subject access request. The firms operate by getting members to sign letters of authority, allowing the firm to investigate the claim on their behalf, but often charging a large fee for doing so. The PLSA code on combating pension scams encourages trustees to respond, respond robustly if it receives any such correspondence from these firms and also provide a copy of the scheme's IDRP, which will ultimately flag that unresolved complaints can be dealt with the Ombudsman for free. Another trend we've seen in this context is the Ombudsman using his determination as a public platform to set out wider concerns about a pension scheme where he expects scams are prevalent. This we saw in the high profile case involving the Norton Motorcycle Scheme, which finally reached conclusion in June this year. The Ombudsman initially received complaints seven years previously from 30 members who transferred into the scheme, where it transpired that the trustee had actually invested pension funds into the company and then refused these member requests to transfer out their benefits. The Ombudsman passed on his concerns to the regulator and an independent trustee was appointed in 2019. In June this year, the Ombudsman's final determination confirmed that there had been multiple failures and breaches by the trustee of his duties. The Ombudsman ordered the trustee to make a payment to all scheme members, totaling £14 million, and an additional £180,000 to the original 30 complainants for exceptional maladministration causing injustice. Finally, it's worth noting that there is a potential change in the landscape with the prospect of additional statutory powers for trustees in dealing with tran transfer requests in the new pension schemes bill. It'll be one to watch to see where tensions lie for trustees and how this new legislation might feed into any future ombudsman complaints. So what should trustees be doing? Well, it's important to understand what is considered reasonable due diligence and follow industry practice. In the current climate, this includes familiarising yourselves with the regulator's pledge to combating pension scams and its joint Scam Smart campaign with the FCA. Trustees should adopt any new procedures where appropriate to do so. It's also important to communicate with the member throughout the process and in particular if any red flags emerge. Well, thanks very much, Laura and Tara, for your thoughts on the trends you're seeing coming out of the Ombudsman's office. Uh, this is our final Pensions Lawcast episode for this year. Our next episode will be published on the 5th of January and we'll be looking at the year ahead. And there's plenty on the horizon, not least a new Pension Schemes Act at some point, um, and dealing with the fallout from the latest Lloyd's judgment on GMP equalisation. Uh, so lots to be looking forward to. Um, and all that reminds all that remains for me to say is to thank you for tuning in today and we wish you and your family a very happy and healthy Christmas at the end of what has been a pretty tumultuous year. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.